Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen of the Baha'i Blogcast, I am so excited for this new guest. Uh, Paul Hanley has an extremely distinguished career. I'm going to let him tell you about all of his specialties and accolades, because I'm sure I'll mess them all up. But um, he is an agricultural philosopher of the highest order, is how I would pose it. He's here beaming in from Molokai, Hawaii, where he recently uh, moved to go pioneering. So let's start with that. You moved from Saskatoon to Molokai. What prompted this move and what has that been like? Well, it seems like a very good idea at the moment when I hear from my friends back in Saskatchewan where it was hitting about 57 below with the wind chill. What? Yeah, I was talking to my friend Joe from Muscaday uh, First Nation, and he said, I had to go into the freezer to to warm up. It was warmer in his freezer. <laughs> <laughs> so it seemed, I, but the truth is we didn't come here for the weather. We wanted to, we're, we're getting of a certain age, you know, and we thought, uh, let's do something interesting and exciting with our life. And uh, the Baha'i writings say it's a good thing for Baha'is and people to move around and kind of mix things up. And uh, so that's what we did. And it's a really great little community here of Baha'is, but also uh, Molokai is a really very interesting place because it's, they say it's the most Hawaiian of the Hawaiian islands. I think it's about 60% Hawaiians, uh, native Hawaiians here. And so it's it's really incredibly interesting place and not really commercialized like the other islands. And a lot of the work that you did in Saskatchewan were, was with indigenous farmers and friends from uh, Native American tribes up there as well. So you're somewhat familiar with indigenous culture as a whole, although it's hard to umbrella that because, you know, indigenous culture is sweeps across most of the globe and can't be kind of defined under one kind of subset. But you have some experience in in working with, collaborating with, and learning about uh, indigenous cultures. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, you can't put everything under the same umbrella, but on the other hand, uh, I think there's some similarities, and we've noticed a lot of similarities. One is that you can talk about spirituality. Uh, mm-hmm. You can talk about God, about the Creator, and everybody's on board. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, with so many of my uh, non-Indigenous friends and contacts, religion is sort of almost a taboo subject. Mm-hmm. So it's really refreshing to be with people who are just so open to to the spirit and and so that that's a similarity I think with most indigenous people around the world. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So let's go to the very beginning. Tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, who you are, and what you do. What your area of study and work has been because it's so complicated. I won't do it justice. Well, I've been you know working as a writer. I'm basically a writer. I'm I'm a high school almost a high school dropout. I. I went back to finish my grade 12, but I was sort of at the period where it was a back to the land movement. Mm-hmm. And I had the, you know, the hair and the beard and the whole thing and went back to the land. Just say it. You were a hippie. Just embrace it. To form a hippie commune and, uh-huh. uh, you know, with somewhat limited results because uh, often urban people don't know anything about how to, how to do farming. Mm-hmm. But uh, we so you, met, so you came from a city before that. Yeah, yeah, from Regina, Saskatchewan, and so uh, I, I went out there and but really fell in love with gardening and beekeeping and things like that. And we lived off the grid and the the whole the whole story back in the in the seventies. But in order to make a living, I started writing, became a writer, and I got involved in the organic farming movement and as a writer. And in 1980, I, I wrote a book or co-wrote a book called Earth Care, Ecological Agriculture in Saskatchewan. And that was uh, kind of like a manual for organic farming. 
uh, which I wrote with somebody who is an agricultural professional. And uh, it kind of helped to spawn an organic farming movement in Saskatchewan that was, you know, one of the most robust in, in North America and the world. And so that was that was an exciting time, just kind of oh, wonderful. going out there and finding people who were doing things in a very different way than the conventions. And so, uh, so I don't have any agricultural training, I, but I'm more uh, I'm a writer. So I've I've uh, been a journalist and written newspaper columns for a long time for 27 years, and uh, then started writing books on environmental issues on agriculture. And, uh, you know, I became a Baha'i in 1975, and I was, I was really struck by how the Baha'i faith talks a lot about agriculture. And uh, Baha'u'llah talked about these five principles for the administration of human affairs, and he talks about things like, you know, peacemaking and education and so on. And then he says, the fifth one is agriculture, and he said, but actually agriculture is the first. And so I was really struck by, by that, and... The fact that the first religion that's really uh, emerged in the industrial era had so much to say about agriculture, about nature, the environment, always really struck me. And so I would spend a lot of time investigating that. And uh, the two, you know, my two passions kind of came together. Mm. How did you hear about the Baha'i faith and how did that first come about well i was i was grew up in a very religious family very very catholic went to catholic jesuit boys schools the whole bit and uh, even my father ran a his business was a church supply business so we were wow. kind of like totally immersed in catholicism church needed churches needed supplies it's like um holy wafers by the truckload <laughs> exactly and and you know vestments and candles and altar <laughs> Alter wine right. and so on, which we'd break into every once in a while. Okay, and, uh, sure. And yeah, so it was like a total immersion in Christianity. But uh, Catholic boys' school maybe kind of does a number on you, and mm. I wasn't too happy with that. And but I met uh, a guy in high school who had been on an exchange program. His father was in in Iran. And I asked him, what was Iran like? And he said, well, there were these people called Baha'is that he had, he had met and really liked. And that's, that's all I remember about that. But I went and looked it up in an encyclopedia, the World Book Encyclopedia in the library. Oh, that's funny. And there was, I remember there was a little picture that's of... That's early, the early version of Google. Yeah, exactly. And I remember there was a little picture of the Shrine of the Bob, and there's this short description of the faith, and I thought... Oh, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I I believe all of that, but I had no idea. I thought it was just a Iranian religion. Mm. I had no idea that there were Baha'is in my neighborhood in Regina, and it took me maybe five years to actually meet one. And uh, and then, you know, the rest is history. You start reading the books, and it's it's mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah, that's great. So this spiritual thirst that you had combined with your passion for agriculture and writing about agricultural movements has really culminated in your latest book, which is really astounding and important. And a lot of people don't know about this particular gentleman. So you wrote a book called Man of the Trees, a book about Richard St. Barb Baker, the first global conservationist. So tell us about Richard St. Barb Baker. He's absolutely astounding personage who has helped shape the modern world and he was a Baha'i and nobody knows about him. Yeah, well, I was uh, in a group called Earth Care back in Regina in Saskatchewan and we were associated with the University of Regina and we got a call from the, I think the president of the university and he said, there's this person named Richard St. Barb Baker, they call, I think they called him Sir Richard, uh, and he wants to do a seminar here, and, uh, you know, we don't know who to turn to, so can he do a seminar through your group? We didn't know who he was. We knew he had something to do with tree planting, and it almost seemed like from little we knew, he was almost like a wizard or something. He was, uh, you know, did magic things with trees. 
So we invited him and a bunch of people came out and this little man comes in. By the time we met him, he was, you know, in his late eighties. This wow. was in the, in the late seventies. And uh, he comes in, he has a staff and he's kind of like, he's, he's like Gandalf. Yeah. Kind of a Gandalf type figure. And he sits down and he just starts telling these unbelievable stories about his time, uh, planting trees all over the world in Africa and everywhere. Really. He was, uh, mm. was real, a real groundbreaker in in that field. And, uh, and then in the evening he had a fireside and it was loaded with people, uh, and again, telling all these incredible stories about the Baha'i faith and his connection to it. So it was, mm. uh, it, it was quite extraordinary. And so I wanted to delve more into his life. Uh, and I found out he had a connection to Saskatchewan because he had been a pioneer homesteader in Saskatchewan in the early part of the 20th century. So when you say pioneer homesteader, was that Baha'i pioneer or no, no. just... Just a British Commonwealth, English Commonwealth yeah, homesteader. Yeah, uh -huh. this Go West young man. He came from uh -huh. from Britain and started a little farm outside of Saskatoon. And then he went into town and joined the university as one of its first students. And he was actually training to be a to be a minister, yeah. like Anglican Church minister. But then he fell in with a nearby Indigenous uh, community, um, Moosewoods Reserve and uh, became really influenced by their way of thinking. And he also went up into northern Saskatchewan, became a, a, a lumberjack, and was sort of amazed at how bad the forestry practices were and how wasteful, and decided to leave ministry school and become a forester. So he went back to England, went to Cambridge Forestry School, studied forestry, and then became part of the colonial office, went out into the colonies in Kenya and Nigeria as a conservator of forests. And, uh, was he a Baha'i during this time or he? No, not okay. yet. Mm -hmm. So he went to Africa in 1920 and he was, uh, supposed to be conserving forests, but he realized what his real job was to sort of facilitate the exploitation of the forests for lumber companies. And he didn't like that. He needed to find ways of of replanting forests, conserving them, and so on. So he went to the elders of the Kukuyu tribe, where he was mainly working, and uh, he said, we've got to plant trees. And they said, no, that's God's business. And he said, no, we have to, we have to help God. And so they said, well, everything we do here is through a dance. And uh, so he said he'd sponsor a dance and brought together all the young men and women to be uh, for a dance of the trees, and this was kind of his the start of his uh, his work as a you know, sort of building a movement around tree planting around the world. So he worked with Chief Josiah and John Joe, and together they formed what was called the Men of the Trees. And all these uh, young men would sort of pledge to plant so many trees and do a good deed every day. And he gave them a badge, and and actually thousands of people came out to this first event. And so this is kind of one of the first attempts, I think, of kind of really working with a, with a group's culture to, you know, talk about protecting the environment in the context of culture. And so he, he built that movement there, but he was very sympathetic with the Africans. Uh, he, uh, one incident happened where one of the officers attacked an African and he jumped in the way and took the blow that was... Uh, aimed at this African worker. It broke Baker's collarbone and, and uh, it kind of really endeared him to the Africans that he would do that. Mm -hmm. and, but anyways, he was kicked out of Kenya for doing that, went over to Nigeria and worked there and was, uh, I think he was really working on many of the things we're talking about today in, in agriculture and environment, things like permaculture, agroforestry, agroecology, uh, kind of developing an agriculture and food system that mimics nature. And he was talking about things like fair trade and, and uh, ecotourism and all of these. So this things. was all in the 1920s, 1930s. In the early, early 1920s. Wow. And then I think it was 1922 or 24, 
there was uh, a parliament of the living religions of the Commonwealth. And he was asked to come and give a talk on African religions, which he did. And at the end of his talk, a woman came up to him and said, you're a Baha'i. And he said, oh, really? You know, what's that? And she said, you love the other man's religion as much as your own. And he said, that's true. And, uh, and then he started to, she gave him some books and so on. He read them and... and Do we know who, who this mysterious woman was? Claudia Skipworth Coles was her name. Mm-hmm. I love those British hyphenated names. Everyone has they like. She was an American, actually. Oh, oh, darn it! Yeah. There, goes, there goes that comedic theory. Yes. Yeah, so uh, yeah. So he became very attracted to the Baha'i faith, and mm-hmm. uh, and so he had this uh, this background of Christian millennialism. His father was a lay preacher, and he was very interested in you know the return of Christ and so on. And mm-hmm. so this kind of fulfilled. Uh, you know his uh, questions about that mm. uh, when he when he discovered the Baha'i faith. So how did his Baha'i belief then dovetail with his ecological work? And he and he and he became very close with Shoghi Effendi. Yeah, well, I think he he really you know the Baha'i faith the Baha'i writings are just filled with metaphoric uh, allusions and, and yeah. concepts that really relate to nature and a lot to trees. And even mm. the manifestations of God are called the tree of life. Mm. So, you know, there was sort of a natural connection there that made that, made that easy. But, but I think also um, he found that whenever he combined his efforts for the Baha'i faith and for protecting the environment and planting trees, everything would go better. So he'd be kind of confirmed in his, his work for for conservation and tree planting when he combined the two together. So he would always, uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. He was, he was eventually sort of kicked out of Africa because he was too sympathetic to the, to the local people. And that didn't really work with the colonial service. So, uh, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the twenties, he was invited to go to Palestine by the governor of Palestine, also British mandate. And uh, he was asked to come there and do something about tree planting because, uh, you know, it was desertified most of the most of Palestine. Mm-hmm. And so he uh, he realized that, you know, it was such a so many religious factions and so on there, unless he could bring them together. And and, uh, you know, have them working effectively together, he couldn't really achieve anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. But the first thing he did when he got there was he went to Haifa, where Shoghi Effendi lived. This is 1929. Shoghi Effendi was the guardian of the Baha'i faith, the the leader of the Baha'i faith. And he went and he met Shoghi Effendi. He said when he arrived at Shoghi Effendi's house, Shoghi Effendi came out himself and presented him with an envelope which had the first life membership of the Men of the Trees. And so Shoghi Effendi really sympathized with his movement and with the with all the ideas around conservation. And actually throughout Baker's career until the Guardian died in 1957, he always supported him and he would send cables. Remember cables? Oh yes, cables. And he would send him a cable and uh, you know support whatever St. Barb was doing, some kind of uh, public action or whatever. But which anyways- is, Which is interesting, which is just put to put a pause in, in, this, in this history. It's what we're being called upon to do right now. I mean, we've always been called upon to do this, but in, there's a lot of discourse happening in the Baha'i community about elevated conversations and about service at the community level and service at the global level. And it seems like that's what St. Barb was involved in kind of almost before anyone else. Well, he was a real pioneer in that area. So here's this ecologist becomes a Baha'i, starts this organization, Man of the Trees, is traveling the world promoting ecology and tree planting and engaged in dialogues with the UN and environmental groups and and politicians and bringing religions together and Shoghi Effendi showing his support of that from the get-go. And this is really what Baha'is are being called on to do, all of us to engage in some way with what we're passionate about that helps make the world a better place, 
on a community level and governmental level and connect with as many people as possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, we talk about public discourse and social action as being two mm -hmm. two major movements within the faith. And yeah, he was he was out there doing that from the get go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, just this example is kind of interesting of, of what we're talking about. And he goes back to Jerusalem after meeting the Guardian. Then he decides to kind of trick all of these religious leaders. So he hires a hall that has little alcoves in it, curtained alcoves. And he gets each of the, you know, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and the bishop and the leaders of the, of the Jewish community and the Druzes and so on. He gets them all to come at different times and ushers them into an alcove with a curtain. And then the time comes to start the meeting and he pulls all the curtains and they're all in the same room. <laughs> and uh, That's fantastic. That's like out of a movie. And he kind of eloquently kind of weaves this story that brings them all together in this idea of starting a, a festival of tree planting in, in Israel. And, you know, they're, they're kind of all there, so they, they can't leave. And he's made up this pamphlet, which has all their names on it as vice chancellors of the of the new movement for men of the trees of Palestine, and they, they kind of go along with it. And interestingly, Israel, I, I read this thing, Israel is the, one of two countries in the world where there's more, there were more trees at the end of the 20th century than at the beginning. Oh my goodness. There was a little bit, I mean, you can't give him too much credit, but he, he plays a role, and, and I think wherever he goes throughout the world, there's some kind of a a little bit of uh, magic or something that he that he spreads, encouraging people to plant trees and, and really kind of capture this kind of idea that we could reclothe, he say, reclothe the world in trees. So he really was a wizard. He was kind of a wizard, and you know he was an amazing storyteller, and you know would really draw people in. And when I I wrote this book, I actually wrote it in the 1980s and never never got around to to publishing it, finishing the manuscript. And then mm. the good thing about it was I found out a whole bunch of people, you know, when in just published a couple of years ago, but there were a bunch of people who were influenced by him who have actually accomplished many of the things that he wanted to do and wasn't able to because it was, mm. he was too far ahead of his time. Like for example, in the fifties, he made an expedition through the Sahara desert in an old truck and he did. He wanted to prove that the Sahara used to be a forest, so he wow. drove right through from from Morocco to Uganda, and that was a, that's a whole adventure. Uh, and as he was uh, driving through in the middle of the desert, he'd find old tree stumps and so on. So he sort of proved wow. his case. So he said, uh, what he recommended was building. They call it a Great Green Wall. It was supposed to be, you know, kind of equivalent to the Great Wall of China, but out of trees mm. across mm. the Sahara Desert on the south side to stop the spreading of the desert. And he proposed, like, all the world would come together. They would uh, dedicate all the armies of the world to planting mm -hmm. this, this mm -hmm. uh, Great Green Wall. Mm -hmm. And restoring Africa, he said, restoring the Sahara was like adding a continent to the world. And could support all the, you know, the exploding population. I'm sorry, there was, there's a gentleman named Sawadogo who, uh, there's a documentary about him called The Man Who Stopped the Desert. Is this one of the men that was influenced by St. Barb? I don't think he was. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I've, I've seen that documentary too. It's amazing. But there are people like him who, who would go into, who were influenced by Baker. Like there's this one guy, now I can't think of his name. He was is an Australian, and he was mm -hmm. with his father uh, as a as a boy. They went over to a neighbor's place, and in the shed there was a pile of books. And he was sort of poking around the shed, and he saw this book on the top called uh, "Sahara Challenge" by Richard St. Barb Baker. Mm -hmm. So just serendipitously, he picked it up. He was inspired by it. Became a forester. Then he went back, to, you know, later went to Africa and developed a method of forest uh, or desert reclamation. Mm. And they've reclaimed like millions of hectares of land. Wow. Inspired by this vision of St. Barb Baker. And I found maybe four or five people who are major leaders 
in, in uh, the global forestry movement who were inspired just serendipitously simil in similar ways by St. Barb Baker. They heard a talk when they were, up, you know, just turned on the radio in the car and heard him giving mm -hmm. one of his little talks on the radio mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and uh, it really changed their lives. So what are some other things that we can all learn from, from St. Barb Baker's um, example, especially as Baha'is? as this is a mostly like 70% Baha'i listening audience. I think, uh, you know, the thing I, I, I felt at the end was, was perseverance. I, he kept coming back to Saskatoon because, you know, he had he'd been, as I mentioned, a homesteader there and a, and a student. They gave him an uh, do honorary doctorate from the University of Saskatchewan. And he happened to be in, in Saskatoon when he died. And... Uh, there's a great photo in in my book on him where he's in a wheelchair and he's kind of all kind of a wizened up old man and uh, I happened to be there at the final tree planting ceremony ceremony on World Environment Day June 5th 1982 and he came in his uh, his wheelchair and just with the greatest effort got up out of the wheelchair and helped plant this last tree and then he basically went back to the place he was staying and died. And I thought, wow, you know, now he's 92 years old and, and he's, he's still at it right to the very end of his life. So just persevere, keep, keep working and trying to do something positive for the world. I think it's, it's a wonderful example. You know, I've spoken about it before on this podcast show, but all of the quotes from, especially from Abdu'l-Bahá and Shoghi Effendi, I'm not sure if Baha'u'llah spoke about it, but Baha'is being the leaven, you know, and uh, when you think about what a leaven is, you know, it's a it's a bacterial impurity that's sprinkled into a a much larger mass. In this case, like a loaf of bread, that allows the loaf of bread to rise. It it allows it to actually become bread. And I think about this incredible example of this gentleman being a a, a spiritual Baha'i leaven pouring that into this this concept and affecting, you know, millions of trees and thousands of people uh, with his perseverance and his and dedication. Yeah, they say you know there's estimates that he, that he was responsible for protecting and planting literally billions of trees through his wow. work. So yeah, just amazing what one human being can do. So. Speaking uh, about what one person can do, what can 11 billion people do? How was that for a segue? Did you like that? Pretty good. That was pretty good, right? So you I thought have you were this... going to go with 11. You, you, I thought you were going to go for 11. <laughs> 11, 11, 11 billion. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a good amount of puns in there. So, so um, for the folks who don't know, you also wrote a book called 11, uh, which is fascinating, saying that the end of this century, we're going to have 11 billion people on the planet. And uh, I don't even know how to get into everything that the book covers, but it certainly gets into climate change. Uh, it certainly gets into agriculture and the connection between climate and agriculture. But it's much deeper than that. It's, it's about um, a revolution that would be needed for humanity to coexist 11 billion people on the planet, how we need to kind of rethink the, how we do everything. And um, uh, this is something I'm personally very passionate about, um, kind of a, a, a reimagination uh, from top to bottom about human interactivity, economic, agricultural, Healthcare, education, certainly race and social justice issues, that goes without saying, um, but a complete and total reimagination if we are to be able to uh, increase and share resources. But that's my ham-fisted way of going into a little bit uh, about your book. But tell us about 11, and then I'll get to more, some more specific questions. Well, um, yeah, I mentioned I, I was an environmental columnist for 27 years. I wrote an article every week, and it was, it was like really covering all the issues uh, in environment and agriculture. 
But one of the things that really stood out for me was that, you know, as far as science is telling us, that really the, the world system we have now is unsustainable. Mm. But we were about to add another 50% more people. There were, you know, when I was started 11, there were about 7.2 billion people. But the projections were all showing us maybe leveling off at about 11 billion at the end of the century. And I thought, okay, we're already unsustainable. We're going to add 50% more people. How is this possible? Like, you know, this seemed like such a stark, uh, stark future that we're, we're moving into. So I, I wanted to write something about how could we live together with 11 billion people. And uh, this is where the kind of intersection of the Baha'i teachings comes in, I think, because, you know, it's obvious to me that you, we can't get there without a complete transformation in civilization. Well, let's, before we go to that, give us the, the foundational uh, issues with 11 billion people sharing a planet. What do you spell out in the book? Yeah, I mean, I think that we have to move to a place where, where we're not so dependent on material, basically. So we have to become much, much more efficient in our use of any kinds of any kind of material, especially energy. So it, and, and in order to do that, it requires a real deep transformation. And I think it's ultimately it's the transformation of culture so that we get our, our joy, our happiness, our satisfaction with life through a different set of things than we, than we do now. We're so focused on the materialism, on consumerism and so on, to, to kind of fulfill our lives. And what we're really, where we need to go is a place where our relationships, our, our inner life and so on, provide us with that kind of fulfillment. So we're talking about a, a real, uh, a type of future where our inner life kind of affects our ethics, our, our sense of connection with other people, our responsibility to other people, where, you know, the extreme, extremes of wealth and poverty can't exist anymore, where we have to share equitably between everyone. So what we're really talking about is a, a deep cultural transformation, I think, in order to make that kind of world work with that many people in it. Mm. You, talk, you use the phrase in your book, an ethical revolution. What's an ethical revolution? Well, I mean, let's, let's look, for example, at, uh, at this idea of the, the military. We, we spend two, something like $2 trillion a year. Humanity does? Yeah, preparing to fight with each other, mm -hmm. defending, defending ourselves from other people or, or being prepared to attack other people. Mm -hmm. A huge, really, a huge part of our of our energies as a, as a civilization go into that. Now, can we afford to do that? What the world we're heading into in terms of uh, protection of the environment? I don't, I don't think we can. So we need to somehow change our ethics, our ethics around sort of fear of the other and so on. And, and this is where I think the Baha'i teachings really come in with this focus on the unity of humankind and the wholeness of humankind. How we're, we're one people, our, our oneness as human beings rises above all the differences between, you know, nationality, race, ethnicity, and so on, class, and and really, you know, this this centrality of unity in the Baha'i faith, the unity of humanity, sort of seems like on on the surface, like, oh yeah, that's a great idea, but actually, it's 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 very, it's it's also a very practical uh, kind of a roadmap for how to move into the future. If, mm -hmm. if we can build that sense of unity, there, there's something really an interesting uh, concept in the Baha'i faith, which is that the outer world, the environment is actually a reflection of our inner world. Mm. So our inner condition and the condition of our relationships with others is then reflected in the physical world around us. Yes, Shoki Effendi has a quote, man is organic with the world, his inner life molds the environment. And the longer version of that is, we cannot segregate the human heart from the environment outside us and say that once one of these is reformed, everything will be improved. Man is organic with the world. His inner life molds the environment and is also deeply affected by it. This one acts upon the other 
and every abiding change in the life of man is the result of these mutual reactions. Don't think that I had this memorized. I had this <laughs> standing by because uh, it's in your book and it's something you've referred to in some of your writings before. So I knew we were going to come to that quote, but what does that mean to you? It's pretty profound. Well, yeah, I mean, it's deeply profound. There's a mystical side to it, I think, but there's also just a kind of a practical side to it. I, I already mentioned the military. You know, the, mm. the military mm. is kind of a manifestation of this kind of inner condition that we have of fear of the other and, mm. and almost uh, uh, irrational fear of others. And so if we could change that and r remove that, that kind of fear, if we could understand each other, all, all human beings as, as members of one family, of one nation, then there would be the release of all of this, this energy and, and wealth that goes into the military to be used for constructive purposes. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, you, you can see this kind of connection between the inner and outer is a, almost a mystical thing, but actually it has very, very practical. Uh, I mean, an, another one would be, you know, the, the, the accumulation of wealth in the, in the hands of a few people in the world. And it's increasing all the time where, where masses of people are, are poverty stricken, are, mm -hmm. are malnourished or hungry. And a few people are hoarding massive amounts of wealth in offshore accounts. Now, if you, mm -hmm. if you had that inner transformation where you became aware of, the, of your connection with all human beings, that mm -hmm. kind of attitude would change. Mm -hmm. So without, mm -hmm. without that uh, transformation, I think, of the individual uh, at that spiritual level, at that ethical level, without that ethical revolution, I don't see how we can move forward, you know, in a, in a safe way into the future. So what, what other specific solutions do you uh, look at in, in 11? Well, yeah, I think, uh, I, I think that many of the, the sort of plans and teachings of the Baha'i faith really apply. Uh, for example, one of the big problems we have in terms of environment, climate change, and so on, is the inability of nations to come together and find solutions. So we, so many of the problems we face are global problems and climate change is the most, the most prominent of those. And mm -hmm. yet there's, you know, what is it, 185 separate countries doing their own thing, uh, uh, kind of jockeying for position. So I think moving towards a global system of global governance is essential moving forward. And then connected to that is, I think, partisanship in politics. So we have a political system that's based on, on uh, partisanship and this sort of struggle for, I guess, political survival in a sense. Power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, power. And you're fighting with each other uh, over, uh, over control. So you're going to attract into that arena, generally speaking, you're going to attract people who want power. And that's a very dangerous thing. So, uh, again, the Baha'i faith gives this, uh, this different kind of model of how you can approach governance in a very different way that's nonpartisan and that doesn't select for, for ego uh, in, in leadership positions and so on. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. it's actually a, a really, uh, in, in the Baha'i community, we use this model and it works. Uh, and so we have global governance in the community. Uh, on a nonpartisan basis, and uh, I think you know this is another idea that needs to be brought into the into the world in general. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I don't spend as much time in the book talking about specific environmental practices. I, I do some some of that, but a lot of it is kind of going below that at the level of how we change our culture, our political culture, our economy, mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, according to this, the, the sort of ethical shift and, mm -hmm. and bring about a cultural transformation that would then be, become evident in the material world around us. So this gets into some dangerous territory where there's a certain subset of people that kind of believe that climate change isn't really the issue, economic injustice isn't really the issue. We just have overpopulation and we just need to bring the population down to 
four or five billion and then all the reasons, we could just carry on, we could continue, it wouldn't be a problem, everything would be fine, we just need to reduce numbers. Um, that can't be true, can it? Yeah, whenever I give presentations, somebody always brings that up, you know, we need to, well, solution is to reduce the population. And I, and I say, well, how, how are we going to do that? How do you do that? Uh, like, who's going to step forward, you know, and say, I, I won't have any children or, or what, you know, it's not, mm. not possible. In the period of time since I wrote the book, there's something like 800 million more people in the world. Wow. I mean, this is a trajectory that we're on. And we're actually moving towards zero population growth, but it probably won't be till we hit something like 11 billion people. Uh, so I, it's it's not really something that we can you can reverse quickly because there's there's all this stuff about demographics about how many. But there's a kind of an inherent racism in that statement, which is kind of like, oh, all these poor brown people are overbreeding. So there's a kind of a unspoken agenda a lot of times when people speak about reducing population. Yeah, well, and, I believe. and even if you don't think that way, that is actually what you're, is what you're saying, mm -hmm. you know, because there's already zero population growth in most, uh, you know, countries in, in Europe and, and Japan and so on. It's like, uh, and most of the growth is actually happening in, in South Asia and, and in Africa. So, yeah, I think... And isn't so much of having a large family if you're a poorer uh, person because you need, you're still living in an agricultural kind of situation and you need the children to work the land, you need the kind of the labor. And so it, it's a result of economic injustice? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, if you're, you're talking about population growth before, the best way to, to slow population growth is to give... Uh, women power mm. over their own mm. lives and education and yeah. education yeah so so really the solution every place where women's rights have increased population growth has gone down so that is definitely a, a key part of it is is the women's movement and, and there's some amazing examples i don't know if you've seen a, a film called frontiers of learning and there's uh i talk about this in 11 too in in the community of bihar in india how they, they have this kind of subtle ethical revolution occurring in this community by using the uh, community building activities, the Baha'i faith. Uh, and this leads to the emancipation of women. And just things like women in this community would get be married off at 12 or 13 or something. And in the Baha'i community, they were the woman was, uh, you know, Baha'is don't practice that. And, mm -hmm. and they have the story of a woman who was, uh, you know, she was allowed to choose her own partner. She didn't have to have, uh, it wasn't an arranged marriage. She got married when she was 20 or 22 or something and, and was, uh, had an opportunity to develop her, her, her own capacities and so on. Mm. And this became, was becoming part of this new culture in this community, but not with protests and so on. It was through education through educating people, adults yeah. and, and youth and so on, through studying together and uh, becoming kind of aware of these, these new, for them, new principles. And even things like dowries and so on, which, I don't know, in, in Baha'u'llah's Baha Book of Laws, there's huge amount of space given to dowries. And I'm thinking, what? Why? why would he go into all of this about dowries? But in this example, in this community, they show how dowries were really impacting their community in, in mm. really negative ways. And the Baha'is had a very, have a very simple approach to dowries. And, and this had sort of freed this whole, it was freeing this whole community of all these de ah. debts and so on. And I mean, I'd never even occurred to me, you know, because we don't have that in our culture in, mm -hmm. in Canada, but it's a big part of cultures around the world. So a lot of these laws which perhaps you don't even understand what they're there for, suddenly it, it kind of manifests as a way of, uh, that actually has a huge impact on things like the environment, agriculture, and so on. One of the podcast interviews I did was with Manaz Javid, the founder of the Mona Foundation, and Mona Foundation supports a, a school called Digital Study Hall, uh, which works in similarly to the Khan Academy with um, online classes and especially focuses on empowering young women and girls in India. And Dr. Irvashi Sani, 
who founded it. She <laughs> has incredible stories that she tells about educating these 12 and 13-year-old Indian girls and telling them, you know, you do not have to get married. <laughs> if your parents say, oh, you have to get married, like you don't have to do it. Fight for your right to not get married until you're of age, of legal age. You do not have to have sex. You do not have to have babies that you don't want. And it's, she's not a Baha'i, by the way. It's just folded into the curriculum of girls' health and education. And what this leads me to think, and this is also relevant in your, in your book and pops out in your book, is that it's all connected. You know, here we are talking about women's rights, and we were talking about that having to do with population growth, and we were talking about that having to do with, you know, climate change and, and agriculture and consumerism and materialism. And we realize, like, you connect the dots between all of these profound spiritual ideas, really for the salvation of humanity. It's not just like, oh, this is a good idea, but it's all one idea. You know, we think of these social concepts as like these different buckets, like, oh, I'm going to work on uh, racial injustice. I'm going to work on women's empowerment. I'm going to work on, you know, economic injustice. And, but it's, it's all of a piece. Yeah. I, I, I was, I was telling you that I, I recently got involved with this, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation has this, uh, they, they did an analysis and they found that almost all visions of the future are negative. So if you go into science fiction, uh, speculative fiction, movies, and everything, when they talk about the future, it's mm -hmm. almost all apocalyptic, which, of course, makes for interesting films. But they said, let's come up with some visions of the future that are positive. So they put out an invitation for people to uh, create a food system vision for 2050. And I worked with a group of people in the prairies in Canada to develop a vision. We were eventually successful in, in, in getting the, the Rockefeller Prize, along with nine other groups from all around the world. But one of the things they wanted to do was exactly what you're talking about, create a systems approach. And so uh, one of the things we did was start looking at what are all the different elements you'd need to change in a, in a system. And mm. it really starts to touch on, just as you were saying, it, touch, it touches on on women's rights, it touches on race, it touches on indigenous indigenous people and their rights. Uh, looks at you know technology, how we how we change our diets, how we change our policies and politics. I mean, everything has to be considered as part of a whole uh, transformative process. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, for me, that was where um, where being a Baha'i was really helpful because I think this is part of the Baha'i vision is this kind of total transformation that is mm -hmm. inner and outer. Like Baha'u'llah said, the object of every revelation is to affect a transformation in, in society that affects both the inner and the outer. And mm -hmm. so uh, I think the, at the level of the individual, we have to transform our inner life, our, our ethical systems and so on. And then, you know, that, that moves into families and communities and, and nations and institutions and so on, all working together to uh, to bring about positive change. And so, if you if you leave something out, in a way, mm. it, out of the puzzle, it, it doesn't work. This puzzle piece right. is missing, or yeah. That's beautifully said. And there, this brings me to this quote, this incredible letter from the Universal House of Justice, first of March letter, two thousand seventeen. It's really the a letter on economics. This one paragraph says, every choice a Baha'i makes as an employee or employer, a producer or consumer, a borrower or a lender, a benefactor or a beneficiary leaves a trace. And the moral duty to lead a coherent life demands that one's economic decisions be in accordance with lofty ideals one's economic decisions be in accordance with lofty ideals, that the purity of one's aims be matched by the purity of one's actions to fulfill those aims. So how do you see this tying into what you're talking about? Because we, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of sit back and be like, well, this is something that has to be done at a governmental level or at a corporate level, but what role do I play as a, small business owner or a 
family man or a housewife or a school teacher uh, to affect uh, economic justice, which is one of the centerpieces uh, of sweeping social change. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Universal House of Justice, which is the, you know the, the elected head of the Baha'i Faith, talks about how society is made up of three protagonists. There's individuals, there's communities, and there's institutions. And each of those have a role to play. And at, at you know, I think the letter that you mentioned in the quote you just provided from House is, is so, it's so profound. It's, it, it, I, I remember when I read that, it was just kind of like, wow. Uh, they just absolutely hit the nail on the head that every individual has to, has to change because I, I read a quote, I don't know, I've been attributed maybe to Gandhi that you can't create a system that's so good that the people don't have to be good. You know, you, mm. you, you can't create a, an institution or a, an organization that's, that's so uh, good or effective without the individuals in it being part of that process of change themselves and working on, the, on their, own, their own issues. So, yeah, I think all of these uh, protagonists in a, in, a, in a society, in a change movement, all have to work together and unless you know we're prepared to live ethically in our individual life and in our economic interactions but also the way we we treat our environment uh you mm -hmm. know we can't really go through a transformative process but on the other hand individuals can't do it on their own they have to work in aggregates and communities and they also have to be effective members of institutions and the institutions have to be play a role in change. So mm. there's a, you know, responsibility to each member of any kind of group to behave in, in, a, in a responsible way. Uh, but doesn't mean that it's, it's something that only individuals can do. It's, it's a, again, it's a kind of systems approach that we need. Mm. Uh, in, in the book 11, you talk a lot about urban uh, agriculture. Can you tell us more about your passion and commitment to urban agriculture and its importance? Yeah, well, I, I, it was something I never really realized but how big urban agriculture is. They say urban and peri-urban, so just the areas around cities. But something like 800 million people in the world practice some form of urban agriculture. Mm. And today we're seeing more uh, urban farmers who are taking, uh, let's say, empty lots and so on and growing food on them. And I, I first saw this, and I, I was in Tokyo at a conference. They took us to a neighborhood, and there were, it was like a micro-farm right in the middle of Tokyo. And they, they uh, produced food and sold it just to the apartments right beside them. So they're, they're, it was a producer-consumer co-op farm. Uh, they were producing all this food. I remember they were selling lettuce by the leaf like you could buy a leaf of lettuce and it cost you know <laughs> x yen and for a sandwich yeah <laughs> and uh and then they took you know they they use these uh mats the wicker mats in japan in the homes i can't remember what they call them and they would every once in a while have to change those mats and they would they would become the compost for this farm all the mats in the, in the apartments of the of mm. the different consumers mm. So they had this kind of self-sustaining system right in this community. So, you know, we think of urban farming as maybe just a, a minor kind of contributor to the food system, but actually uh, it's, it can be quite major. And uh, there are parts of the world like Russia, Moscow, there's a huge amount of growing of food right in the city, Singapore, mm. many, many different places. So it's becoming a, uh, becoming a thing in North America as well, where people are mm. are starting to produce food commercially within cities. So uh, kind of uh, shortening the chain between the producer and the consumer is a really a big thing. And with the COVID epidemic, we kind of learned that, you know, in a sense, some of our systems, which seem really robust, are actually quite fragile. Mm -hmm. So I know in, in, in Saskatchewan, where, where I, I'm from, uh, we produce a billion bushels of wheat a year, 
But during during COVID, I went into the store to get some some uh, flour. There wasn't any. There was no flour. <laughs> there was no yeast. Suddenly, everybody had started baking because they had nothing else to do, and uh, there was no flour. So, so these supply chains are actually can be quite fragile, and so shortening the chains are important. And and many of the urban farms and so on became extremely popular during this period. Yeah, so it's so, yeah, it's a whole phenomenon. So I would be remiss if I didn't bring up climate change and uh, real quickly the correlation between uh, renewable agriculture, um, what you talked about, which is um, buying local. How would you how would you put that in agricultural terms? You just mentioned it in terms of urban farming. Yeah, well, um, shorter short food chains, but buy local is is. Is easy to understand. Right. So, because I notice so many of things, like I go into Trader Joe's to buy asparagus, and it says grown in Chile. Well, how did it get from Chile to Trader Joe's in Sherman Oaks, California? <laughs> and um, uh, but can you speak a little bit about the connection of agriculture and the solutions that renewable agriculture uh, provide towards uh, healing the earth? And uh, and this uh, climate catastrophe. Yeah, there's a there's a scientist, uh, Ratan Lal is his name. He's a Indian background, but he's an American scientist who he just won the World Food Prize, and is also the head of the Soil Association or the Soil Science. I can't remember the right term for the U.S. Soil Science Organization, but he talks about how by simply increasing soil organic matter, soil organic carbon. Uh, we can uh, we can trap a lot of the, the the carbon in the atmosphere and put it into the soil, and you know there's something like 500 million uh, farmers in the world, and almost all of them are small farmers farming something like one one hectare of land or a couple mm-hmm. of acres. And interestingly, so I saw this stat the other day that one in 12 people in the world is an Indian farmer. So. Oh my goodness! He really focuses a lot on on agroecology, and this takes us back to Richard Saint Barb Baker, because that's what he was proposing in 1924 in Nigeria, was uh, how the smallholder farmer could build this kind of systems that mimic nature, and end up mm-hmm. trapping a lot of uh, carbon from the atmosphere into the soil, and making it much more productive. So agroecology systems are being adopted uh, a lot by, often modeled on indigenous farming systems. Mm-hmm. And uh, the potential there is to trap a large percentage of the carbon that's going into the atmosphere uh, from agriculture. And, uh, I, you know, I think this has a lot of potential. At the same time, it's much more productive system. So many of these, these smallholder farmers, they can uh, uh, build up their, their soil and instead of using external inputs, fertilizers and so, and so on that are expensive, mm-hmm. they can produce mm-hmm. them right on their own farm, increase their incomes, increase their productivity so they can feed their family better, have more food to, to sell lo- into local market, plus the environmental service they're providing. So he's talking about being, if one of the most effective ways to fight climate change is to pay farmers, small farmers, for ecological services. So we're talking about something like $25 a year per farm hmm. is all it would take to actually start transforming those farms into much more, uh, much really climate-friendly farms. And so there, there's that, and there's, you know, things like the reforestation of the, the Sahara, again, St. Barb Baker was talking about, are also ways of trapping carbon from the atmosphere and reversing climate change. So there's... There's a, there's a huge amount of potential in this, and it's actually, uh, you know, you don't have to go up and uh, shoot pellets into space and reflect light out. You know, people are talking about these kind mm-hmm. of uh, geoengineering solutions to climate change. Carbon capture. Yeah, um, these are these are simple things that actually help help the people in the world who are poor, and so you know, combining all of these different concepts together around rural development, like the status of women uh, and, 
economic justice and agroecology and so on, are really provide a kind of a, a whole set of solutions that are really doable. And the people who are doing these things around the world are uh, are really having a lot of success with it. And the question is, mm. how do we how do we make it kind of a universal approach to agriculture? So I want to end with this, uh, Paul. Your work is uh, super helpful and inspiring, and this conversation has been really illuminating. And I hope people have enjoyed it as much as I have. But one of the things I'm struck by in reading some of your articles, hearing some of your talks, um, and looking at your work is there is a preponderance in your work of hope. Hope is something that has driven you to recently win this award, uh, the project that you're working on that received the Rockefeller Foundation's Food System Vision 2050 prize you referenced earlier. Hopefully we can put some information about that or a link in the podcast information. But things seem so dire and overwhelming for humanity right now, but you consistently talk about hopeful solutions. So how important is it that we as Baha'is, as workers in the vineyard of the Lord, as well-wishers of humanity, uh, have hope and provide hope for the hopeless? Yeah, uh, very. Uh, I think that uh, one thing is that there's, uh, I've read some quotes about the difference between optimism and hope. So optimism Mm. might be, you know, in this definition, it might just be kind of an unrealistic sense of, ah, everything will be okay. Don't worry. Uh, We'll Mm -hmm. come up Mm -hmm. with the technology or whatever, we'll carbon storage or, or whatever. And mm-hmm. hope is a different thing. It's really about, it's a, it's a virtue. It's about, um, I think, a sense that humanity has the capacity to transform itself. Mm. And I think that you can build that sense of hope by, by really kind of exploring the stories of people who are actually involved in the change right now. And I know uh, I already mentioned the film Frontiers of Learning, and there's other films that the Baha'i World Center is coming out with, like Light to the World and so on, where they start going to communities who are involved in change processes. And you see how this deep change can happen just through the grassroots effort of local people. And I mean, it's not just the Baha'is. You can go out and uh, see people working on reclaiming deserts and like just unbelievable changes. Uh, I think of someone like Austin Bowden Kirby, who's a Baha'i, who's called the Coral Gardener, who works with people uh, in small island nations and restores coral reefs and so on. So there's just so many stories that are exciting out there of, of transformative change at the grassroots level. And I think we need to really not only uh, learn those stories, but become involved ourselves and see it, see it happen. So, uh, yeah, I think get involved in change processes at a, at a very, you know, just the House of Justice talks about small steps. If you take small steps and many small steps together take you a long distance. So I think become engaged in, in, in change. Mm, little by little, day by day, as Abdul Baha Just the little small yeah. things like, you know, people start growing tomatoes on their balcony or something. Okay, mm-hmm. that's a first step, small step. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you become involved in a community garden. And that community garden is not just a place to grow food, but it's a place to exchange conversations that are meaningful with your neighbors. You know, and, and that way we, you know, we really can engage in a movement mm-hmm. for transformation, which is, I think, very, very hopeful. So, yeah, there's many reasons to be fearful but there's also this other movement of, of hope that I think we can all become engaged in. Well, I thank you for your time, Paul. And I also think for like young Baha'is who might be listening, how inspiring it is the work that you've done as a writer, as an ecologist, as a well-wisher of humanity. And you're, you're a high school dropout. Look at you. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have a PhD in the field that you choose to work in. And honestly, in all honesty, I think that's really inspiring that you didn't let that hold you back. This was your passion. You farmed, you wrote, 
and you've made your impact that way. And it's, it's accessible. Um, you don't need to have a PhD from Yale to make a difference in your chosen field. Yeah. So the message is drop out. <laughs> no. Grow your hair long. Yeah. Move to Saskatoon. Thank you, Paul. Thanks so much for being a, a, a part of this conversation. My pleasure. And continued best wishes. I love the chorus, the cacophony of, of roosters and birds there in Malachi that we got to listen to over this discussion. They are very much a part of this conversation as well. So thank you, birds of Molokai. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night. <laughs>